Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Be Wales. A New Arthur One of the greatest popular crazes in 13th century Europe was for the legends of King Arthur. Reflected in the art, literature, and tourist industry of the day, Arthurian lore had the power to excite, inspire, and entertain men and women everywhere from Sicily to Scotland. Few men were more excited by the stories and supposed relics of Arthur than the new king, Edward I. The legend of Arthur for we now know that Arthur belongs chiefly to the realm of imagination and not to history, had been a part of European literary tradition since the early ninth century, when stories were exchanged of a native Briton who rose to become king and fought against both Roman and Anglo-Saxon invaders. Down the centuries his legend had been remoulded and translated to suit the cultures that took an interest in it, until in the 1130s the author Geoffrey of Monmouth inserted a vivid and dramatic account of Arthur's life and reign into his wildly successful book The History of the Kings of Britain. Geoffrey's Arthur was a pious Christian king who fought valiantly against pagans, Saxons, and Romans alike, driving invaders out of native British lands, uniting the British kingdom, conquering Ireland, Iceland, parts of Germany and Orkney, and subduing Norway, Aquitaine, Gaul, and the Balkan kingdom of Dacia. He was the heroic, munificent king of a British kingdom that was the envy of the world. Geoffrey related that in Arthur's time, Britain had arrived at such a pitch of grandeur that in abundance of riches, luxury of ornaments, and politeness of inhabitants, it far surpassed all other kingdoms. The knights in it that were famous for feats of chivalry wore their clothes and arms all of the same colour and fashion, and the women also, no less celebrated for their wit, wore all the same kind of apparel, and esteemed none worthy of their love but such as had given a proof of their valour in several battles. Thus was the valour of the men an encouragement for the women's chastity, and the love of the women a spur to the soldiers' bravery." Romance, chivalry, and beauty abounded in this knightly paradise, and it was not hard to see why the stories appealed to the late medieval barons, knights, and ladies who heard them. As they were distributed, retold, and embellished by other writers, Geoffrey of Monmouth's stories, dressed up as a genuine history of the British Isles, began to be thought of as actually true. By the time Edward was born there was a booming trade in Arthuriana, and a healthy industry had grown up around King Arthur's imagined memory. When Glastonbury Abbey burned down in 1184, Henry II had encouraged the monks to broadcast the fact that they had discovered the tomb of Arthur and his queen Guinevere buried beneath the ruins. Arthur had originally been a Welshman, and it was a matter of faith among the Welsh that he would return to liberate them from the English. Now he was conveniently revealed to be English and dead, and the brothers at Glastonbury Abbey encouraged paying tourists to come inspect the skeletons that they had supposedly found. During the course of the twelfth century the legend became a potent part of English aristocratic culture, and tournaments known as round tables were held to award prizes for gallantry and good jousting. 
It was no surprise, therefore, that Edward, a young man with conventional noble tastes, was since his youth as enthralled by Arthur as his peers, or indeed that when he married Eleanor of Castile he had whisked her off on their honeymoon to see the tomb at Glastonbury. For Edward, however, the myth of an anglicised Arthur was more than just a matter for entertainment and courtly discussion. It was a mental template for his whole approach to kingship. Just as Henry III had fixated upon Edward the Confessor as his guide, inspiration, and saviour, so Edward I was to see the world through the prism of his own particular version of Arthurianism. It was as convenient a myth for him to cleave to as the Confessor had been to his father, for his problems were Arthur's in mirror image. Arthur, to put it crudely, had been a Welsh king whose mission was to crush the English. Edward, in 1277, faced the opposite task. In the summer of 1277 Edward assembled his first great army, more than fifteen thousand men, equipped with horses, supplies, and vicious weaponry, advanced along the coast road from Chester into North Wales. Above them fluttered a multiplicity of banners and flags marking out the various components of the feudal host. They rumbled toward Gwyneth to root out and crush the rebel and disturber of the peace, Llewellyn, the last prince of Wales. This was a national army, agreed upon by Edward, his magnates, and an assembly of the Knights of the Shire at one of the twice-yearly parliaments he held almost every Easter and Michaelmas from the start of his reign until its end. On or around November 12, 1276, the English had declared war upon Llewellyn, determined to stamp on this troublesome prince in the name of security and stability for the kingdom. Edward had been unable to raise more than a handful of his household knights when he had made the journey to Outremer, but he found that with the support of his barons and knights in Parliament behind him, he could take the whole might of England to war against the Welsh. Wales had been a constant problem for the Plantagenets. As every English king since the Norman invasion had found, to control or even to pacify Wales was a task that required immense resources, time, and will. Ever since King John's advances against the Welsh during the brief period of his British mastery, English power beyond the marches had been slipping away. Llewellyn the Great was effectively sole ruler of Wales from his power base in the northwestern province of Gwynedd until he died in 1240. Subsequently, during the Barons' Wars, his grandson Llewellyn ap Griffith, later known as Llewellyn the Last, had allied with de Montfort to take further advantage of the English crown's weakened position. The Treaty of Montgomery, sealed as Henry's realm was being pacified in 1267, had cemented Welsh gains. In fact, the Treaty of Montgomery was, from Llewellyn's point of view, one of the great treaties in Welsh history. Llewellyn was acknowledged as Prince of Wales in his own right, with direct control over Gwynedd and feudal lordship over almost every other lord in Wales. The Treaty of Montgomery was irksome to Edward for many reasons. Personally, it had compelled him to give up land of his own in Wales, and viewed in the context of kingship, it represented a damaging loss of the crown's rights. This alone might have justified a war of reconquest, but throughout the early 1270s Llewellyn piled on further provocations. He invaded English baronies in Shropshire and the Marches, antagonizing important marcher lords, including Roger Mortimer and Humphrey de Boone, Earl of Hereford. In 1270 Llewellyn invaded Glamorgan, causing a rift with his erstwhile ally Gilbert, Earl of Gloucester. At home Llewellyn quarrelled with his brothers, imprisoning one Owain and forcing the other, David, into exile at the English court. But Llewellyn himself refused to go anywhere near Edward's presence, despite repeated requests that he do so. Neither would he pay the English crown the fifteen thousand marks due to it under the terms of the Treaty of Montgomery. In a final fatal act of overreach, in 1275 Llewellyn gave Edward an indisputable casus belli. Having reached his fifties without producing an heir, he began negotiations to bring Eleanor de Montfort to Wales. The daughter of the late Simon de Montfort, Eleanor was a potent symbol of the damage the Welsh had done to the royal family by their alliances during the Barons' Wars. She had been betrothed to Llewellyn in 1267, but was living in exile in France. 
1275 she was married to the Welshman by proxy, and at the end of the year she set out from the continent to meet her husband. It was an impressive litany of provocation, and Edward felt compelled to respond. He headed off Eleanor by having her ship captured in the Bristol Channel and imprisoning the good lady at Windsor. But preventing a marriage between the Welsh prince and Simon de Montfort's daughter was not enough. Edward needed to put Llewellyn firmly back in his place. Edward invaded Wales in 1277 and marched his army through the summer down the coast road from Chester. Shadowing the knights, soldiers, and supply wagons on their march along the coast was a fleet of ships that served both to blockade the Welsh from escape or reprovision via Ireland, and to keep the enormous English army well supplied on its march west. The whole campaign was supremely well organized. Edward's military companions managed the logistics. Crusading men such as Roger Clifford, Otto de Grandison, and John de Vesey combined with Civil War veterans like William de Beecham, the Earl of Warwick. They based themselves at Worcester and began to gather a terrifying arsenal with which to batter Llewellyn into submission. Confident that his long-standing allies were up to the job, Edward showed that he had something of his father in him. He allowed them to organize the war muster while he toured the shrines of East Anglia, praying before Henry's favorite relics and giving a passable impression of a man of peace. But peace was not what was planned at Worcester. Hundreds of thousands of crossbow bolts were ordered from Gloucestershire. War horses were bought in the specialist markets in France, wheat and oats ordered from the Justitia of Ireland. Vehicles were requisitioned from private owners all over England. The royal mints produced silver pennies to pay the many thousands of soldiers drafted to fight for England's security and the Plantagenet family's honour. It was a mark of Llewellyn's fractured authority that Edward's royal infantry included Welsh mercenaries. More important even than the infantry, however, were the large teams of engineers engaged with the purpose of cutting a path through North Wales along which Edward's huge advance might be made. Guarded by crossbowmen and knights, bands of men from the English interior constructed a huge road along which the invading army could roll. They felled the thick, silent woodlands that overhung the regular routes to the mountainous heart of Gwyneth known as Snowdonia, clearing a way that was in places hundreds of feet wide, now rendered impervious to Welsh guerrilla tactics, which relied upon swooping out of the trees to slash and hack at an unguarded enemy before disappearing. At Flint, where Henry II had almost been killed by just such tactics, a great timber fortress was begun as a forward base of operations. The whole effort was a magnificent achievement of military requisitioning, planning, and engineering. In pure numerical terms, Edward's army was not as strong as the armies that had marched on Toulouse for Henry II, or mustered for the Third Crusade under Richard I but the campaign was conducted with deadly logistical intent to neuter Llewellyn's only fighting option. The Welsh prince could not hope to harry an army on the move by use of guerrilla tactics, for Edward's engineers had blown his cover. The army marched deep into Llewellyn's territory. Throughout August they cut a path from Flint to Hrathlan and then on to Conway. As they ground their way into Gwyneth, they gradually cut off supplies and the movement of men, surrounding the Welsh and starving them into submission. At every main outpost they stopped, and engineers began digging to create sites on which permanent castles could later be constructed. Llewellyn fell back into the mountains. Edward pushed forward to the river Conway and camped at Deganwy. This was deep into enemy territory, where Welsh regard for Plantagenet rule was starkly demonstrated by the silhouette of a ruined castle Henry III had once built on the spot. Soon the lesser Welsh princes started fleeing Llewellyn's cause. The decisive blow was struck in early September, when English marines disembarked on Anglesey, occupied the island, and harvested the grain crop there, thus capturing the richest farmland in Wales, and simultaneously emptying the granary of Gwyneth. It was enough to persuade Llewellyn that the English king was an opponent to be taken seriously. He surrendered within days, and on November 9th agreed to a truce at Rutherlan. He was allowed to keep Gwyneth, but virtually everything else was taken from him. Llewellyn submitted to a fine of £50,000, 
and abandoned his claims to the four cantrefs, the four small counties that bordered Gwyneth, and everything else that Edward had seized on his march west. The disputes with his brothers Owain and David were to be settled, and in recognition of the supremacy of the English king over the Welsh prince, Llewellyn agreed to pay homage to Edward not only on his borders at Ruthlan, but back at Westminster, at the seat of English governance and power. Llewellyn had been sorely beaten, and the treaty was, from Edward's point of view, a satisfactory way to end the expedition. To solidify the English position, castles were planned in Aberystwyth and Bwilth, Flint and Ruthlan. The English now had military outposts bristling on the outskirts of Welsh territory. The invasion had been an impressive success. Little did Llewellyn know that this was only the beginning. THE FINAL STAND Edward celebrated Easter in 1278 with an eerie twilight ceremony at Glastonbury Abbey, during which the supposed tomb of Arthur and Guinevere was opened. According to the local chronicler Adam of Domerham, the skeletons were found side by side, each in a casket with images and arms painted on the sides. The following day the piles of bones were moved to a grand new resting place in the abbey. This tomb was later destroyed in the dissolution of the monasteries, but the sixteenth-century antiquary John Leland described it as made from black marble with two lions at each end and an effigy of Arthur at the top. The ceremony fairly pulsed with messages about the new regime. On the one hand, the King Arthur whom the Welsh so venerated was dead, but he was to live on in Edward. As the King and Queen venerated the bones in Glastonbury Abbey, they sought to stitch the myth of Arthur into the fabric of Plantagenet family lore. It was a well-contrived end to a brutally effective campaign. In the aftermath of Edward's first victory over Llewellyn, he turned his attention to domestic affairs. His Chancellor, Robert Burnell, was pressing ahead with the first stages of a sweeping programme of legal reform, and three extremely wide-ranging statutes were passed in 1275, 1278, and 1279, known respectively as the First Statute of Westminster, the Statute of Gloucester, and the Statute of Mortmain. They dealt with matters as diverse as rules on land tenure, ensuring free elections to Parliament, and the right of all free men, rich or poor, to justice, Westminster, establishing a new system of heirs to travel the country investigating abuses of royal rights, Gloucester, and preventing land from being granted to the church in order to avoid feudal dues and taxes, Mortmain. They marked the start of a legal revolution by statute, which continued for more than a decade. The matter of the church also began to vex the king. He was prevented from promoting Burnell to Archbishop of Canterbury by Pope Nicholas III, and had to accept the difficult and extremely pious Franciscan friar John Peckham as Archbishop instead. Peckham was a highly principled ecclesiastical politician, and a strict observer of the Franciscan rule. He refused all personal property, meaning that he had no income and was thus constantly in crippling debt to Italian bankers insisted on extremely strict discipline from the English clergy, and believed that he had a divine mission to root out corruption and abuse in the church, most notably among clergy who grew rich from pluralism, the practice of holding multiple benefices. His view on relations between church and crown was pithily alluded to in his official seal, which had an image of the martyrdom of Thomas Becket on the reverse. Unsurprisingly, Beckham clashed numerous times with Edward from the very beginning of his tenure as archbishop. His stance on pluralism irritated the king, who gained a good deal of advantage from being able to give his clerks multiple lucrative posts in the church as reward for their work. A long-running battle also flared up over the conflicting jurisdictions of royal and church courts, a subject that had animated Becket against Henry II and Peckham frequently expressed to the king his frustration at royal ministers' reluctance to help enforce sanctions against the numerous people whom he had excommunicated from the church. In autumn 1279 a furious argument blew up over Peckham's demand that a copy of the Magna Carta should be hung in all of England's cathedrals and collegiate churches. 
He was eventually forced to back down, but not before further souring his relationship with the king. Despite their equally strong characters, Edward and Peckham were diplomatic enough to ensure that their relationship never spilled over into murderous hostility. Despite significant political differences, they were generally on good terms, and on some matters agreed wholeheartedly. One such was the character of the Welsh, whom both King and Archbishop considered unreconstructed savages. It was as well for his survival that Peckham took such a view, for in 1282 Edward's war with Wales exploded once again, this time in an even bloodier form. On the night preceding Palm Sunday in 1282, Llewellyn's brother David, a former member of the English court, appeared unexpectedly at Harden Castle, the residence of Edward's ally Roger Clifford, with a great forty-foot stone keep on top of its rounded mot. The Welsh prince had been expected as an Easter guest, but he turned up early, in company, and armed. In the dead of night David led a band of men in storming the castle, seizing Clifford from his bed, and filling the corridors of the stone fortress with the stifled screams of men whose throats were slit in the dark. This was no Easter visit, it was a declaration of war. Over the course of the next few days royal officials were tricked, grabbed, and held as hostages. Castles in English hands were attacked and taken in lightning raids by bands of armed Welsh rebels, and the peace imposed by Edward at Rutland disintegrated almost overnight, as Wales was plunged into violence. The instigator on this occasion was David, but his brother Llewellyn's hand lurked close behind. The villain of 1277 had been welcomed into Edward's circle, allowed to marry Eleanor de Montfort in a ceremony at which Edward himself had given away the bride, and gently coaxed into the ranks of the Edwardian aristocracy but he had never forgotten his family's heritage, and although he professed ignorance of the rebellion until it fully erupted, he had spent his time since 1277 moving quietly to re-establish his prestige among the minor Welsh princes. Despite Edward's shrewd attempts to rehabilitate both brothers, in the early 1280s David and Llewellyn still had personal grievances with Edward, whose origins lay in the redistribution of land seized after the First War. As their attitudes toward the English king hardened in the years following Hrathlan, they adeptly spun their complaints into a wider argument about Edward's apparent desire to override Welsh law and customs. After the victory, Edward had imposed English law, customs, and administrative efforts harder on the Welsh than any Plantagenet king before him. Llewellyn and David suggested to their compatriots that in so doing the English king was deliberately attempting to crush the spirit of the Welsh people. This argument was crystallized in a complex legal dispute between Llewellyn and his compatriot Griffith ap Gwenwynwyn over the cantref of Arwistley, a county to the southeast of Gwyneth. Llewellyn wished to be judged under Welsh law. Edward pushed for it to fall under English jurisdiction. A dispute over an obscure parcel of land was effectively parlayed into a test case for the very survival of Welsh law and customs. The result was to produce a quite different Welsh opposition from that which Edward had faced at the beginning of his reign. In those days he had taken it upon himself to discipline a wayward neighbour. Now he faced a war of national identity. The invasion blueprint he followed was similar to that which had proved so effective in 1277. Once more troops and engineers worked in tandem, tearing through the Welsh countryside and establishing building sites where they went. Military assistance, which was formalised as a call to the feudal host in May, was requested from the English earls. To carry the cost of the building works, large loans were raised with Italian bankers. Once more forces were mustered at Worcester and marched via Chester to Rutland. Once more the sink-ports provided shipping. Once more marcher lords were relied upon to carry out private engagements in the south. The main body of the Welsh army was encircled in Snowdonia, and Anglesey was linked to the mainland by a giant bridge formed of forty pontoon boats, built to order by huge teams of Chester carpenters. The remaining outposts of Plantagenet Dominion overseas were called upon for their support, and aid was sent from Ireland, Gascony, and Queen Eleanor's county of Pontieu. 
Progress was not so swift as it had been five years previously. The Welsh were in no mood to submit to another round of Edward's punitive treaty-making. The king, for his part, was determined not to give an inch. The best offer he was prepared to make to Llewellyn, which the latter rejected out of hand, was to exchange Snowdonia for a rich English earldom. Losing Snowdonia would mean giving up land so valuable that Gerald of Wales had written during the previous century that, if all the herds in Wales were driven together, Snowdonia could provide them with pasture. It could not be granted to the English without destroying the territorial integrity of Gwyneth, the centre of Welsh resistance and national identity. This Edward well knew. Peckham tried to arbitrate, but it was clear from the outset that the two sides were set for a bitter fight. The Welsh fought valiantly, as was their way. Llewellyn orchestrated the war from the north, while David roamed more freely across the Principality. Their brother Owain had retired to his estates and took no part in the rising. They achieved a significant victory in November 1282, when forces led by Edward's Gascon supporter Luke de Tanny were ambushed near the pontoon bridge with Anglesey, and large numbers of knights drowned beneath the weight of their armour in a cold sea. But these losses were not enough to deter the English king from his task. The English fought into the winter, reinforced by hundreds of men drafted over from Gascony. They squeezed Snowdonia hard, and in December Llewellyn, fearing starvation, tried to make a desperate sortie from his hideaway. He was ambushed at Urfan Bridge near Bwilth in the central marches, and slaughtered in battle on December 11, 1282. The accounts of his death are hopelessly confused, but he was probably run through with a lance before his prone, blooded body was decapitated, and his head was sent to London. Llewellyn's death was the final blow to Welsh independence, struck on a freezing hillside surrounded by bare trees shortly before Christmas. The Welsh fought on under David until spring, but in April 1283 the final Welsh stronghold, Castellaber, was captured after a short siege, and in June David was betrayed and captured by Edwardian Welshmen. He was taken to Rutherland and then to Shrewsbury for trial in front of a Michaelmas parliament. Edward delivered the severest punishment on David, a man he believed had betrayed his hospitality and lordship, and was the scion of a family of traitors. David was hauled roughly to the scaffold and hanged as a common killer, but the punishment did not end there. Before he was dead his intestines were slashed clean from his body with a butcher's blade, and burned in front of him. His body was hacked into quarters and sent to four English cities. His head was sent to London and set on a spike at the Tower of London. It was a traitor's death. In London David was reunited with his brother. The two Welsh princes stared lifeless over England's largest city. Meanwhile the country for which they had given their lives was smothered beneath an ambitious building project. Edward was determined that his victory should be complete. To ensure that Wales would not rise again, he put into action the greatest castle-building programme that Britain had ever seen. THE KING'S CASTLES A medieval building site was a raucous, dirty, smelly place, a cacophony of clatter. For seven months of every year between April and November, when the hard earth softened and the weather allowed for unbroken outdoor work, the castle-building season entered full swing. Wherever a major fortress was erected, the landscape around it was sculpted and transformed. Woodland was felled and levelled, stone cut and dragged into place, furnaces roared. Endless streams of carts arrived bearing giant logs and pieces of timber hewn in faraway forests. New roads and routes were trodden by innumerable artisans and labourers, carpenters and masons. Great piles of earth, thrown up out of the deep ditches that were dug as protection around the working site, rose against the horizon. Workers' campsites hummed with the reek and warmth of human bodies, piled close together, creating mounds of rubbish and filth as they laboured in the hot summer sun. Master James of St. George was the greatest castle-builder of his age. 
He had met Edward in Italy during the king's meandering journey back from Outremer to claim his crown, and the king had not forgotten him. James came from a building dynasty. He had learned the art of masonry from his father, and spent his youth working on castles for the Counts of Savoy. They had built towns and castles across the Alps, tailoring their magnificent projects to the tastes and security needs of the demanding and wealthy nobles of northern Italy. Master James was a military engineer, a specialist in organizing and managing building sites rather than an architect, but his ability to carry out ambitious projects to exacting standards made him an invaluable servant to the kings and princes who were his clients. He knew the best experts in Europe for specialist skills, such as canal digging, and he had long experience building castles in difficult and dangerous alpine terrain. In 1278 Edward hired Master James for one of the biggest commissions of the age, a massive ring of fortresses designed to brand Plantagenet power deep into the flesh of the Principality of Wales, altering both the landscape and the political make-up of the nation. Every Plantagenet king, with the exception of Richard I, had come to Wales, and all had departed, having barely left a footprint. Edward I ended that trend emphatically. His two invasions cost him immense amounts of cash and political capital, and right from the start it was clear that he meant to enforce a settlement that would prevent the Welsh from ever rising in rebellion as an independent nation again. He intended to build such an imposing ring of castles around the heart of Gwyneth that the Welsh could not physically remove the English, and would be confronted every time they looked to the horizon by a reminder of their subject status. Edward and his advisers had a very clear vision of what they wanted from the castles. They were to be placed on strategically important sites, and built to incorporate features of the best fortresses of northwestern France and the southern marches, two regions that had seen some of the heaviest and most prolonged warfare of the last century, and that had accordingly developed the best defences. The king corresponded directly in person with Master James, instructing him on the positioning of towers and moats, the fine details of gateposts, the type and colour of stone and timber to be used, and even where he wanted the latrines to be located. Most of the castles whose building was managed by Master James still stand. Some were extensive reworkings of castles already built, others were new commissions. The earliest begun were at Flint and Rutherland on the northern border with England, Aberystwyth on the west coast, and Bwilth in the southern marches. All these were begun in 1277 as part of the limited settlement programme undertaken after Edward's first Welsh invasion. The first three were attacked during the rebellion that prompted Edward's second invasion, during which time the half-built structure at Aberystwyth was badly burned and had to be started again once the war was over. By the time Aberystwyth came to be reconstructed, however, the building programme had been extended in scope and ambition. Alongside Ruthlin, Flint, and Aberystwyth, further castles were commissioned at Denby, Harlech, Conway, and Carnarvon. A final castle, perhaps the most magnificent of all, was begun on Anglesey at Beaumaris in 1295. The terrifying magnificence of Edward's castles is hard to overstate. They were, like all castles, visible symbols of the wealth, military might, and artistic sophistication of a conquering dynasty. But they also had Arthurian overtones. Edward was not simply constructing military outposts. He was wrenching at the national imagination of the Welsh, co-opting their legends and knitting them together with the Plantagenet myth. The castles took many years to build, and in some cases, as with Carnarvon, they were never completely finished. Some were pragmatic refortifications of existing structures, and thus worked within blueprints already set. But for the great fortresses of the north, the finest were Conway, Carnarvon, Harlech, and Beaumaris, Master James worked to a template of a keep surrounded by concentric walls, studded with towers and twin-towered gatehouses, and defended with a devilish innovation, the arrow slit. It was nearly impossible for the enemy to aim an arrow into an arrow slit, but a crossbow bolt could be quite easily fired out. The architectural and historical influences brought to bear upon the Welsh castles were many and varied. 
Nowhere captured Edward's imagination more than the building at Carnarvon, which was the site of an ancient Roman fort, Sigontium, said to have been built by the emperor Magnus Maximus, whom legend held to be the father of Constantine. Carnarvon was built with multicoloured masonry and octagonal towers rather than the round towers seen elsewhere in Wales. It took its cue from the angular walls of Constantinople, and was awarded even greater historical significance by the supposed discovery during the construction of Maximus's remains, which were exhumed and interred in the town church. In many cases Edward's castles were accompanied by new fortified towns, planned settlements designed to deepen the grounding of the garrison in the locality and provide an income to offset the dazzling cost of building the castle. In an age of rapidly rising population, as the thirteenth century was, there was no shortage of English settlers and workers ready to head west for a new life in Wales, even if they would have to contend with the hostility of the conquered locals. In the spring of 1284, during the early stages of work on Carnarvon Castle, Queen Eleanor was brought to the town, where she went into labour for perhaps the sixteenth time of her life. The couple had six surviving children, five girls named Eleanor, Joan, Margaret, Mary, and Elizabeth, and a boy named Alfonso after his maternal grandfather. At least eight other children, including the king's first and second-born sons, John and Henry, had died in infancy. On April 25th the Queen gave birth to another son, who was named Edward after his father. The birth missed St. George's feast day by a couple of days, but the symbolism was otherwise perfect. A prince who shared his father's Saxon Plantagenet name was delivered to the world at a town rich in ancient British history. The little boy, named Edward of Carnarvon, was a flag of conquest and a tool of propaganda. He was Eleanor's fourth son, and his birth was part of a narrative that drew on Arthur, Maximus, and the Britons of time immemorial. It was perhaps destiny that this child should ascend to his father's throne, and so it would transpire when the ten-year-old Alfonso died at Windsor in August 1284. Suddenly the four-month-old Edward became heir to the newly reimagined Kingdom of Britain. With Wales conquered, myths created, and a new heir born, Edward's kingly vision was taking shape. All he had to do now was to pay for it. THE PRICE OF CONQUEST Stamping the legacy of conquest upon the Welsh was a project that required huge investment. The first Welsh war, it has been estimated, cost a relatively modest £23,000, but the second ran up a heavy price tag of around £150,000. Much of this went toward the castles built to secure victory, each of them worth between £14,000, the eventual cost of the never-finished castle at Beaumaris, and £20,000 for building Anglesey. The investment was not all made in stone and timber. Edward imposed on Wales a conqueror's peace as severe as the Norman settlement of England. In keeping with the legal revolution beginning in England under Robert Burnell's supervision, the Welsh settlement was grounded in statutory law. The Statute of Wales, passed in 1284, overrode much of the native Welsh legal and administrative systems. Flint, Anglesey, Merioneth, and Carnarvon all became English-style counties with the administrative machinery of sheriffs and courts that formed the central nervous system of local government. English criminal law took formal precedence over Welsh custom and legal procedure. Edward came down hard this time on the Welsh princes. Family after family was destroyed, their lands taken and inheritances confiscated. Loyal Edwardians were then parachuted in to hasten the process of Anglicisation. But for all the changes the conquest imposed upon Wales, its effect in England was no less extraordinary. The vast price of conquest abroad, even if only beyond the marches, put Edward under serious pressure to make sure that a political consensus was maintained at home. As a child of the Second Baron's War, he had seen his father fritter away money on foreign policy, only to reap the rewards in the form of rebellion from the political community that had begrudgingly paid for military expeditions. 
It was an experience he was determined not to repeat. Clustered, therefore, around the wars of Welsh conquest was a huge programme of English legislative and financial reform. Almost every area of English administration, justice, and financial regulation was addressed, as Edward's government strove both to purge the machine of royal government of rogue agents and to reach its hand deeper into the shires. The programme was the first great sweep of legal state-building that had taken place since Henry II's day. Some of this was badly needed after the drift of Henry III's reign, but the willingness of Edward's government to engage with reform was also critical to the king's success in raising the eye-popping levels of finance required to pursue his ambitious foreign policy in the British Isles. The key measures were the statutes overseen by Burnell, whose role in designing the architecture of the new English state was no less fundamental than Master James's imprint on the castle-building programme. The three statutes made before the Second Welsh Invasion, Westminster, Gloucester, and Mortmain, had begun the process. After the invasions, the flood of legislation continued— the statutes of Acton Burnell, 1283, and Merchants, 1285, dealt with matters of debt. Westminster II, 1285, was, like Westminster I, a wide-ranging piece of legislation, whose fifty dense and detailed clauses set out new processes, rules, and writs, for everything from the inheritance and alienation of land and the passing of land from dead men to their widows, to the troublesome issues of false accusations of homicide and jury-dodging by rich men who bribed sheriffs to avoid doing their service. These legal reforms were not simply aimed at making land disputes and trade agreements easier to resolve for the kingdom's barons. Rather, they penetrated to the very lowest levels of society. The Statute of Winchester of 1285 revolutionized criminal justice at the village level, where it was believed that criminals were avoiding justice because juries unwilling to indict and convict their own people were shielding them from the full weight of the law. Whereas every day robbery, homicide, and arson are committed more frequently than used to be the case, it read, and jurors would see the felonies committed on strangers pass unpunished rather than accuse the offenders, many of whom are persons of the same country, our Lord the King, to reduce the power of felons, establishes a penalty in such case, so that for fear of the penalty they shall henceforth not spare any one, nor conceal any felony. The Statute of Winchester demanded that local communities take responsibility for flushing out felons. If a crime was committed and no criminal was produced, then the whole hundred would be punished collectively. It turned the whole system of law and order into a system where every subject had a responsibility to help keep the peace. "'People living in the district shall answer for robberies and felonies committed in the district,' said the statute succinctly. "'In great towns which are walled, the gates shall be closed from sunset to sunrise. Anybody harbouring or otherwise lodging persons suspected of being violators of the peace would be punished as an accomplice to the crime.' Most visibly, Winchester left a stamp on the English landscape. Just as Edward's workmen had cut a vast path through the woodlands of Wales to facilitate his conquest, so now every commercial road in England was to be cleared for safety. It is commanded that highways from one trading town to another shall be enlarged wherever there are woods, hedges, or ditches, so that there shall be neither ditches, underbrush, nor bushes, for two hundred feet on the one side and two hundred feet on the other, where men can hide near the road with evil intent, read the statute. The mercantile arteries of England were turned into treeless highways to allow the free movement of goods and money about the realm. Alongside the system of statutory reform, Edward's government was characterized by a drive to streamline royal finances. A re-coinage in 1279 sought to rectify the currency from Henry III's reign, which was, according to Matthew Paris, so intolerably debased by money-clippers and forgers that neither natives nor foreigners could look upon it with other than angry eyes and disturbed feelings. Edward also instituted reform to the systems of royal bookkeeping. The Statute of Ruthlin in 1284 arranged for old debts to be written off the pipe-rolls on which government business was recorded, the processes for chasing up debts and fines from the royal courts were sped up, and royal commissioners were subsequently sent around the country to investigate debts owed to the crown.
but even with these measures there remained a gaping deficit in royal finance. By 1289 Edward was relying heavily on foreign bankers' loans and a combination of regular taxes upon the lay and clerical population to top up his income. It was a sign of the political credit he had earned by virtue of his reform program that he could raise taxes of fifteenths on lay and clerical goods early in his reign, and could continue to raise income this way for years to come. In law as in war, Edward was determined that his government should pursue radical and permanent policies that would cement his legacy long after his death. Only by this sort of active government could he hope to bind together a nation that would support him in his expensive foreign policy. Yet if his reforms were much needed and vital for the financial and political security of the crown, there was a darker side too. A terrible stain upon Edward's transformation of his kingdom spread from his treatment of England's Jews. THE EXPULSION OF THE JEWS on Tuesday, October 10th, 1290, a group of poor Jews from London boarded a boat to sail down the Thames. In their hands they carried royal warrants of safe passage. On their coats they wore the yellow, book-shaped badges that the Lord declared they must wear to distinguish themselves from Christians. In their packs they carried all their worldly possessions. They were headed for the coast, and after the coast for the continent. They knew they would never return to England. The boat passed out of London and through the countryside that surrounded the capital. They were leaving behind a city in which it had been increasingly difficult to live, in which ever more strict and onerous laws had been passed against their people, preventing them from trading or earning, or even from engaging with their Christian neighbours, as their ancestors had done quite freely. Their synagogues had been burned, their friends beaten or hanged, and hot-headed preachers had called for their conversion to Christianity. London was a city that no longer welcomed or wanted them. They had no choice but to leave. They floated downstream. After many miles the river widened, and the Kentish landscape to starboard fragmented into islands and sandbanks. The open sea lay ahead. The tide was going out. Their captain, a Christian, turned the boat south toward the Isle of Sheppey. As the tide grew lower and lower, he cast the anchor overboard and allowed the vessel to come to a rest on the exposed sand of the Thames estuary's ebb tide. Calling to his Jewish passengers, he explained that they could go no farther until the waters began to rise. "'Feel free to leave the boat,' he told them. "'Stretch your legs on the sandbank.' All the passengers took his advice, stepping out of the vessel and walking on the wet sand. They did not notice the tide coming back in. The captain, of course, did notice. He and his crew knew that after ebb tide the Thames rushes back over the sands it has vacated, carrying all before it. He rushed to the side of his boat and clambered aboard. He shouted down to his Jewish passengers who had wandered on the sandbanks and were now cut off from safety, telling them to call upon Moses, who had parted the seas for them once before, to do so again. Then the boat sailed off, with its passengers' stolen baggage still aboard. The Jews were swept away as the tide rolled in around them. Every one of them was drowned. For their efforts the captain and crew of the boat were later imprisoned. Their crime was one of the most heinous acts that accompanied Edward's expulsion of England's small Jewish community in 1290. It was not typical of what was generally a rather peaceful exodus, but it was a painful illustration of the callous cruelty that was aimed toward Jews by Europe's Christian people and governments during the 13th century. By the time of Edward's reign, England's Jewish population numbered around 2,000 people, organized into some fifteen mainly urban communities, and still living as they had been in John's day, under the terms spelled out by the apocryphal laws of Edward the Confessor. The Jews themselves and all their chattels are the kings. Yet since John's reign conditions had grown less and less welcoming. In 1240 three Jews were executed in Norwich for the supposed crime of having circumcised a five-year-old child, whom it was said they planned to crucify at Easter, in a case that prompted attacks on Jews and their property. 
In 1255, a Jew called Jopin was accused of having murdered an eight- or nine-year-old Christian boy by torturing him to death with a number of accomplices in a ceremony associated with witchcraft. A legend held that the boy's body would not sink in a stream or be buried in the ground. When thrown in a well, it was said to have emitted a sweet smell and a bright light. When Henry III visited Lincoln, he had ordered Jopin's death, and had had ninety-one Jews rounded up and sent to London, where all were condemned to death. Eighteen were executed before Richard Earl of Cornwall intervened to spare the rest. Similar cases were recorded in London and Northampton in the 1260s and 1270s. In 1269, Henry III had restricted the terms under which the Jews could trade, and made blasphemy by Jews a hanging offence. When Edward returned from his crusade, he passed the Statute of Jury, 1275, which outlawed most forms of usury, or money-lending, restricted Jews to living in certain cities, imposed the yellow badge of shame, described as, in the form of two tables, i.e. religious tablets, joined of yellow felt, of the length of six inches, and of the breadth of three inches, and levied an annual tax of three pence on all Jews aged over twelve. The Queen Mother, Eleanor of Provence, expelled Jews from all her lands at around the same time as the Statute of the Jews was proclaimed in England. When Edward instituted harsh laws against coin-clipping, the process of shaving the edges of silver coins and thereby accumulating the precious metal, and his justices began prosecuting offenders in 1278 to 1279, the Jews were subjected to a judicial massacre. Although almost equal numbers of Christians and Jews were found guilty of coin-clipping, ten times as many Jews as Christians were executed for their crimes. The head of every Jewish household in England was at some point imprisoned in the late 1270s on suspicion of coin-clipping, and in a climate of legal terror there were frequent cases of extortion against Jewish families, as their unscrupulous neighbours threatened to report them for coin offences. Further mass arrests and forced talages continued during the 1280s. In 1283 Jews were excluded from the protection afforded to ordinary merchants, and in 1284 Archbishop Peckham issued a decree ordering that all of London's synagogues should be destroyed except for one. Two years later Pope Honorius IV demanded that the Archbishops of Canterbury and York stamp out intercourse between Christians and the accursed and perfidious Jews. None of this was unique to England. The thirteenth century was perhaps the most violently anti-Semitic of the whole Middle Ages. Kings across Europe enacted similarly oppressive measures against their kingdom's Jews. Frederick II demanded that Sicilian Jews wear a blue T-shaped badge and keep their beards long. French kings since Philip Augustus had ordered French Jews to wear a wheel-shaped badge. Pogroms, massacres, ghettoization, discriminatory laws, persecution and abuse were on the rise against Jewish people wherever they lived. Edward, obedient to his time with his aggressive, muscular, intolerant Christianity, was following the trend of a bigoted age. Despite the rising tide of abuse and the legal hobbling of their trade, the Jews still remained England's de facto financial sector. Usury continued illicitly, and Jews traded in bonds of debt, by which loans were sold to speculators who could hope to inherit the lands against which the loans were secured if the borrowers defaulted. For obvious reasons, Jews were not popular with the landowning classes that fell into the default trap. By Edward's reign there was severe religious and political pressure upon the king to cripple Jewish trade once and for all. It was a pressure to which the king, at once conventionally pious and happy to advance any position that would fill his barren coffers, would easily bend. Edward had profited personally from the presence of Jews in England. His father had taxed the Jews collectively six thousand marks for his crusading fund, and between 1272 and 1278 Edward's exchequer attempted to raise more than twenty thousand pounds from them, albeit unsuccessfully. But Edward was also a crusader prince, whose contempt for the rights of other religions was easily stirred. He was a conventional bigot, no more enlightened or unusual than his fellow Englishmen, who, like Archbishop Peckham and Thomas de Cantaloupe, Bishop of Hereford, were of the opinion that Jews should either convert or face persecution. 
The immediate cause of the expulsion, as with so much in Edward's reign, was financial. Almost immediately after the settlement of Wales, the king had been compelled to go to Gascony to overhaul his rule in the duchy. He left England on May 13, 1286, and stayed there for more than three years, reasserting his feudal rights, establishing new towns, and codifying the ducal government. Gascony experienced a sweeping, ordered, and regulated Edwardian reform program, but of course this required expenditure. On his return from the duchy, Edward owed the Ricardi bankers of Lucca more than £100,000. He arrived back in England on August 12, 1289, to find the political atmosphere highly charged. There were allegations of serious corruption against some of his foremost officials, including the two most senior judges in England, the chief justices of the Courts of King's Bench and Common Pleas. His officials searching probes into royal rights that had lapsed were causing irritation and unrest, and several English earls were muttering about the legitimacy of Edward's demands for financial assistance when he was outside the realm. In October, Edward was compelled to write to every shire of England inviting anyone with a complaint against royal ministers or officials to bring it before his commissioners at Westminster. This was not a political environment in which to demand more money from a Parliament without making major concessions. Yet money was on Edward's mind, for he had begun to think once again of the possibility of returning to the Holy Land on another crusade. The Mongols had sent diplomatic messages inquiring about Edward's return to fight the Mamluks, and his trusted ally Otto de Grandison was already en route to the Holy Land on a reconnaissance mission. Negotiations were opening with the papacy to levy a crusader tax, but Edward would need to call extensively on the wealth of his barons and the country's lesser landowners if he was to fit out a more successful crusading mission than his first. Desperate for money and willing to accommodate any policy that would help him raise it, he turned to the logical conclusion of Plantagenet policy toward the Jews. The landowning classes wanted to be rid of them, Edward was ambivalent and perhaps even enthusiastic about the idea. He had expelled all the Jews of Gascony in 1287. Now he would do the same in England. It would buy him political capital, raise a popular tax, and perhaps bring in some income from the confiscated property of the departing Jews. Thus, when England's nobles and knights assembled at Westminster in July 1290, a deal was struck. A tax was granted in exchange for the expulsion of the Jews. The Edict of Expulsion, issued on July 18, 1290, commanded England's Jewish minority to leave the realm by November 1st on pain of death. The Edict was distributed throughout the realm and read aloud in synagogues. The Jews put up no real resistance. They began to leave during the summer, and by the autumn they were mostly either gone, or in the case of those unfortunates who boarded ships like the one that sailed down the Thames on October 10th, dead. The Edict of Expulsion marked the end point of nearly a century of increasing hostility aimed against the Jews by Edward and his ancestors. For all the pain, dislocation, and misery inflicted on Jews who left England for an equally unwelcoming Europe, the expulsion was a populist move that proved spectacularly successful. As the two thousand or so Jews who had escaped death or ruin during the first eighteen years of Edward's reign were handed their passes to leave England, royal tax collectors worked on the Christian population that remained. England's delighted landowners, or those represented in Parliament at any rate, had granted Edward a tax of a fifteenth on all movable goods. It yielded an astonishing £116,000, the biggest tax levied on England in the entire Middle Ages. The people groaned inconsolably, wrote the Osney chronicler of its effect on the ordinary English folk. The Jews groaned all the louder as they dispersed throughout Europe, but no one was listening. Edward had once again shown his willingness to legislate and reform according to his needs. This audiobook is continued on Disc 10. The Plantagenets by Dan Jones continued. Disc 10 The Great Cause and French Trickery
As the Jews left England in the autumn of 1290, all signs pointed to the likelihood that Edward would leave with them on a crusade to reconquer lost territory in Outremer. With his tax collectors working the land, milking secular and clerical wealth alike, it seemed as though the new Richard were about to usher in another period of death and glory in the name of Jerusalem. Yet within months fortune had decreed that there would be no journey east, and no new chapter in the story of the Plantagenet Crusades. The rest of Edward's reign would be concerned with events far closer to home. A revived insurgency in Wales, a newly aggressive French monarchy with designs on throwing the Plantagenets out of Gascony, and, bloodiest of all, a new war with Scotland. When all the Welsh tyrants were suppressed, the Scots raised their spears armed with rags. This jaunty lyric to a popular song written in 1298 succinctly depicts the switch that occurred halfway through Edward's reign from making war on the Welsh to making war upon the Scots. The truth, as is often the case, was not nearly so neat. In early September 1290 a fleet of boats set out from Bergen on the southwestern coast of Norway heading for Scotland. The cargo was precious, a girl no more than six years old named Margaret. She was known as the Maid of Norway, but circumstance now dictated that she was to become the Lady of Scotland. On her slim shoulders rested the hope and security of a troubled nation. Margaret was the granddaughter of Alexander III, the Scottish king who had died in 1286. Alexander's death had plunged his realm into a state of confusion. There was no obvious heir to the throne. 